0: It is a very popular place in Katarina?
1: Hi, Judith. How are you? I'm sorry that I came.
0: No, no, that's, this is perfect. I'm fine. How are I'm you? I'm good.
1: Thank you. Um, could you do me a favor and make me moderator because whoever opens the room first uh, is a moderator. So, okay. How do I do that? So you click, you would click on my profile and then on the bottom, there should be an option to, I'm sorry, yep. I'm at home. Um, I just did oh, that. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. Now Great. I can add topics and um, and put up your uh, file, like the Google Drive.
0: And so can you hear me okay?
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can hear you perfectly. Can, can you Great. hear me well?
0: Yes. Yes, perfect.
1: Okay, do you agree with the topics on top? There's Um, not microbiome or, or, you know, there's very limited.
0: No, this is fine. This is fine. Yeah. Perfect.
1: Then let me put up the...
0: link so all I have to do is talk and say which slide is which right
1: exactly yeah and I will um, I will take care of you know checking who wants to ask a question raise the hand and um, check the chat if people Post questions there so you don't need okay. to worry about that. And right. yeah, I'll introduce you um, in, you know, when, when the room starts on top of the hour, I'll introduce you. And then usually we, um, yeah, as I said, um, we usually start with like a couple of interview questions, uh, if that's okay with you. And yeah, then, absolutely. Like, yeah. Perfect. Good. I hope you had a good day. I don't know how the weather is where you are, but here it's kind of very annoying
0: today. It's it's beautiful and sunny out and very cold.
1: Oh, nice! Yeah, I like cold and sunny. That's well,
0: great. I was at our we had our holiday lunch, for the institute that I'm in, and it was very cold. I finally left because we were we were outside. And although it was lovely, it was cold. <laughs> but Yeah. Yeah. How about, how about rain?
1: Rain and wind and kind of cold. So
0: yeah, like You're in New York City, right?
1: Yeah. yeah. It's I'm still in Celsius. I'll never get yeah. <laughs> yeah. also in the lab at Celsius, so I never yeah. changed. Um, yeah, so it's four thousand and raining and wind, so it doesn't really make sense having an umbrella because the rain gets in your face anyway. Right.
0: Yeah. Yep. Wow. No, I know that kind of weather. No, I was in I was in New York a couple of weeks ago, and it was, it rained one day that I was there, but the rest of the days were kind of like it is here now, where it was sunny, but it was very cold, and it was much colder than what the the temperature said it was.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. It it became really cold all of the sudden.
0: Yep. it Was yep. kind of
1: really warm all the time, and then all of the sudden it jumped to being really cold. Yep,
0: yep. Def- it's definitely become well. It's almost winter.
1: Yeah, that's oh. <laughs> it's kind of very funny. How, kind of every year, I'm surprised how cold
0: i know i know you think that we've lived our whole lives and it's been like this but yeah
1: it's well it's so weird like for me you know i'm from portugal and then i grew up in germany so it doesn't get that hot in germany in the regions where it gets so cold in the winter Right. right and then in portugal it's kind of in porto it's kind of very moderate it doesn't get too hot in the summer and it doesn't get too cold in the winter it's kind of a lot of rain but yeah so i i wasn't used to having like these both extremes i kind of like it though like i I hated those summers in germany where it's constantly just rained and it was never really warm which also changed by now now it gets really hot
0: a lot of so so we're in germany in bochum
1: um i don't know if you know Ruhr universität um, that's where i went um for undergrad and masters
0: right. um okay.
1: it's close to cologne this okay. yeah, is
0: yeah, yeah, yeah yeah i've been in cologne in the winter many years ago and it was very cold in fact i was on sabbatical in england in I think it was ninety five or ninety six. It was the coldest winter that Europe had had in four hundred years. It was very cold in in London. The Thames froze. It was very cold in Italy. Everything was closed. It was very cold in Germany. Um, there was a lot of snow. So that was a weird year, long time ago. But yeah,
1: yeah. It's um yeah the funny thing is when i moved to the us as a postdoc (laughs) and people that come here they heard the story and are probably annoyed (laughs) (laughs) and that was like i was here as a phd student you know then i was at nyu but and then um and then as a postdoc my first postdoc was on cape cod at the marine biological laboratory
0: yeah
1: I I did a round year lab there for George Augustine and it was that crazy cold winter where even the ocean waves froze on March. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: And it was one blizzard after the next until like I think the first time I saw the backyard of the place we rent, it was like and of no, like it was April at some point in April. It was
0: oh.
2: horrible.
1: Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so
0: what, what year what year were you at MBL?
1: Um so I was as a PhD student during the summers there with right. in George Augustine's lab. Because yep. I did kind of a collaboration right. work. I was in Joel Ledoux's lab and I we did the collaboration with George Augustine working on um optogenetics on NPHR and stuff and that was 2009 and later on the summers and then when i was year-round there was 2014-15 right yeah.
0: Was. yeah yeah well i was a I was a graduate student at mbl for a while oh nice I have been there many summers to teach
1: yeah that's um i kind of so Dr. Augustine, he opened his main lab then in Singapore at the Duke uh, University there. Right. Right. And I teach then electrophysiology because he, I got trained already in electrophysiology in Germany and during my master's, but then in- to photon and so in his lab. And then I trained um, people from, that were supposed to work then in the Singapore lab that were from asia and from different places right. and MBL then so in the lab yeah it was good it was nice
0: yeah it's fun
1: it's a very very interesting environment i don't know if it's still that way they kind of changed a little bit since uh chicago university it's
0: it's changed quite a bit yeah i haven't i haven't really spent any time there since the university of chicago bought it but i I spent a lot of summers there or parts of summers there, uh, starting in the 80s all the way through to like not so long ago. Yeah.
1: Yeah, nice. And Yeah. yeah, because then when I was there the year round, they asked us on what MBL should focus mainly and be known for. So the neuroscience part was, I don't think really much, part of the year round, you know, the labs that would stay there, they wanted, I think, to focus more on marine biology and so on. Right,
0: yep, yep.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it's still that way, but yeah, it's it's a nice environment. Yeah.
0: Except being stuck in snow. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and if you get stuck on the Cape because everything is snowed in, yeah. Yeah,
1: so, you know, I have, three children so my kids my middle son went to elementary school and my oldest son to the high school there and they had friends that lived on those tiny islands of uh woods hall oh in yeah yep. they couldn't get to school for weeks and weeks and they were running out of food yep. because nothing could really get to them because it was really frozen the ocean, so. Yep, uh, yeah. yep. yeah,
0: no, it's terrible.
1: Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they have some, I think some horses on those islands, they could eat those, but I don't know if they want to do that. But anyways, it, I, I don't know, I wouldn't do that, live on those very tiny islands.
0: Yeah, no, I agree, I agree. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's so scary for me okay i think we can slowly start um thanks for chatting and the time the waiting time went by like nothing good good. (laughs) okay uh welcome everyone to the science society and a special welcome of course to you to this and um before we start let me introduce you to the audience a little bit so they get to know you And um, so, uh, Dr. Judith Eisen um, is an expert in early development of the nervous system um, and especially interactions with host resident microbes. And um, she's at the University of Oregon, a professor of biology and a member of the Institute of Neuroscience. And she's also the co-founder and co-director of UO's um, science literacy program and um, Judith is considered um, the pioneer in establishing zebrafish as a model to study the nervous system and I know so many people who <laughs> use that model it's quite incredible and uh, she's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science and she received the prestigious Guggenheim Fellowship in 2010 and um, you know there's uh, much more to say um, but I feel like it's maybe you know more interesting and interactive if we do this kind of in the interview style and people will still be coming in um, uh, a little bit later but I think we can just start so welcome to this and usually like our first question is like how did you discover um that you have like this passion for science and uh was it maybe something you always wanted to do since you were a child or was there maybe a book or a class or something that kind of sparked your interest to to go into this uh field thank you
0: thanks katarina so uh It's really fun to be here. So I think my path to being a scientist was quite different than many of the people I know. It's not something that I was interested in as a child. When I started out thinking about what I wanted to do, especially when I was in college, I was thinking of things like languages and anthropology, and I was particularly interested in things like indigenous languages. But as I took anthropology courses, and of course, this was a very long time ago, um, I discovered that you could study something that ancient people had done, and you could make wonderful theories about it, but there was no way to test those theories. Of course, now we have at least some ways to test those theories with all of the advances that have been made in, in genomics and, and other kinds of things. But back then, you really couldn't test them to, to at least not to my satisfaction. So I took some science courses because they were required and I suddenly discovered here was a place where you could make a hypothesis and then you could do an experiment and test it. And it just so much suited the way that i thought about the world that i really switched from wanting to work as an anthropologist or a linguist to wanting to work on on biology
1: wow that's really interesting um yeah thank you for sharing that path um which um yeah as as as, i agree it's probably different from um, for many people, but it it led to this you know uh wonderful research you do and the work you did and uh, the advancements of knowledge we have uh thanks to that so um the and um how did this project come about? you kind of talked about you know how you went to biology, but how did you um start working on the microbiota and being interested especially also in this combination microbiota with microglia and you know was it easy to get grants for it or did people not believe you like you know sometimes there's also a backstory about that thank right. you so
0: for- right so so i was a um working on development of the nervous system for many years and i was really lucky to get in on the ground floor of zebrafish so for people that don't know about zebrafish this is a a small freshwater fish that one of my colleagues george streisinger decided to use as a research organism back in the late 60s and the early 70s george had been one of the pioneers of molecular biology And he wanted to switch from doing pure molecular biology to using a genetic analysis to try to understand, basically, vertebrate nervous system development and and function. And so that was something that I um, switched to uh, for my postdoc. I had actually, before that, been working on function of the nervous system in Eve Martyr's lab using the stomatogastric ganglion, which is a small model system. So for many years, just worked on straight development, genetics, molecular biology, um, and cellular processes that were going on during nervous system development. But uh, maybe 15 or 18 years ago, we recruited somebody to my department named Karen Gilliman, who's a colleague of mine now, and we work rather closely together. She was interested in looking at host microbe interactions. This is something that was very new, hardly anybody was studying it. And she wanted to do it in zebrafish, which she'd never worked on. So we we worked together on some of those things. And when she showed me all of the parts of a developing zebrafish that were affected by the host resident microbes, I have to say I was completely shocked. I'd never heard of such a thing, and of course, you know, we all imagined that um, the way development works is it's it's basically mom's genes, and then the zygotic genes unfold uh, to allow the developmental process to happen. But to to see input from microbes was really, really surprising. At this point, nobody really looked at the nervous system that when I saw all the effects, I thought there has to be something going on with the nervous system. So we started looking at that intersection. And then of course, the idea that the immune system and the nervous system interact was not a popular idea back then but there's mounting evidence of interactions between those systems. And especially when you think about the the brain, the microglia, which are the resident um, innate immune cells of the brain interacting with the neurons. So we tried to put all that together. And I think as I give my talk, I'll say a little bit about how those things unfolded. So I was really lucky Um, The behavioral work that I'm going to to talk about to start with and then the work that we did with the microbiome was a collaboration with a colleague of mine named Phil Washburn. There was a a point a number of years ago that the National Institutes of Health, particularly um, NINDS and NIMH, put out a call for people looking at microbial effects on Neural Development, and we put in a grant for that. They did not give very many of those grants, but we were really lucky to get one of them, and that really enabled us to, to undertake this work.
1: Well, I'm glad you were lucky because <laughs> it's really important work, and um, and I'm so glad you you went through with it, um, because sometimes it's also risky, right, To, to to pioneer things, so I'm glad you did. And uh, thank you so much for sharing that story. And for everyone, the presentation slides are in the folder that's pinned on top of the room. There are three, uh, three files um, and they are la- they are numbered. So uh, please feel free to follow along with them. And Judith, the status is yours. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you again, Katerina. I will go ahead and get started. Um, let me say something about the slides. I, I broke it into three files because it was too large to send. Each of the slides is numbered, and I'll try to remember to refer to the number of the slides as I, as I talk so you can follow along. So if you want to go to the first slide, what you're looking at is a little movie of two adult zebrafish in a circular arena, um, chasing each other around. And what you can see is that those fish are socially interacting. They're paying attention to each other. One of them will do something. The other one will maybe mirror it. Then they'll swap off as to who's, who's leading and who's following. So this is a, a kind of a social interaction. There are other kinds of social interactions, but this is uh, one that's that's quite typical and probably any of you who uh, raise fish or have watched fish know that most fish are social creatures. Most animals are social creatures because social interactions are key for species continuity. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, if fish can't interact, or other animals can't interact, they're not going to be able to mate and and carry out other kinds of functions that are vital for them to survive. So over the last few decades, as our ability to study and manipulate neural genes and to image neurons has provided finer and finer resolution, we've learned a lot about development of the neuronal circuitry that's underlying social behavior. But it was only maybe a decade or so ago that people began to realize that there was another component to this process in addition to the animal's own genes and cells. And that other component was the symbiotic microbes associated with that animal. Despite this realization by at least some people, I think it's fair to say that most of the field doesn't take into account that development and function of neural connections results from a collaboration between a host animal and its symbiotic microbes. So understanding that intersection is one of the focuses of research in my lab. So if we move on to uh, the next slide, slide number two, if you want to study these interactions, try to understand the neural basis of them and how the microbiota is affecting them, you really need to develop an assay system. So the assay system I'm going to tell you about was developed by Sarah Stednets, who's pictured here. She was at the time a graduate student in the lab of my collaborator, Phil Washburn. And assuming the movie is playing, what you see is two adult zebrafish um, interacting with one another now not in that circular arena, but in something that looks like a rectangular arena. But if you go to the next slide, slide number three, what you'll see is that a rectangular arena isn't really a single arena. It's two isolated tanks made out of glass that are pushed up against each other and they have something in between called electrochromic film. So this is electrically a uh, modifiable film. So if you flip the switch in one direction, it's opaque. If you flip the switch in the other direction, it's transparent. So when it's opaque, the fish can't see each other because they're in isolated tanks. They can't smell each other or feel the ripples in the water from each other swimming. So each fish acts like it's completely isolated. But when they can see each other, they behave in the way that's shown in the movie. We then have a computer, and this is shown in the next slide, that tracks their movements. So you can see that the uh, the fish spend the bulk of their time pressed up against that glass by the electrochromic film, trying to interact with one another. They spend a little bit of time in the rest of the tank, but not very much. The computer not only can track where the fish are swimming, but if you go to slide number five, the computer can track the orientation of these fish towards one another. And if you go to slide number six, you'll see a little um, plot of this. So the darker areas, the green ones on the left and the kind of pinky ones on the right, show you the orientation of the fish towards one another. So the fish typically are oriented at either 45 degrees or 90 degrees. And this makes a lot of sense if you think about what a fish's head looks like. Its eyes are on the side of its head. So they're oriented in such a way as to be really looking at one another. Okay, so now we have a really nice assay system. And we see that the fish undergo this social behavior, which we now call social orienting behavior. And we can now start to study it. So the first question that we asked, and that's shown in slide number seven, is what parts of the brain are important for this behavior? So what you're looking at in the picture is now not an adult zebrafish, it's a larval zebrafish, um, several days old, and you're looking at it from above, and each of those different colored patterns is a different brain region the brain regions are different colors because they, um, the, brains, uh, the fish uh, um, have genetically encoded expression of fluorophores of different colors, and these are driven by specific gene enhancers that act only in particular brain regions. So we could then start to dissect which brain regions are important if you go to slide number eight using a very nice trick. Instead of using those brain region enhancers to drive different colored fluorophores, we could use them to drive nitroreductase. reductase. Nitro reductase is an enzyme made by bacteria, not by fish. But um, if we express it in different cells and then add metronidazole, which is an antibiotic, it kills the cells that are expressing the, the nitrogen reductase, effectively ablating those cells. So we could go through and ablate all these different brain regions and then test the behavior and ask which brain region is required for the behavior. So if you look in the next slide, slide number nine, you see that we found a particular brain region. It's part of the forebrain. It's called the ventral telencephalon, or VTEL for short, that arrow points to it. That part of the brain is required for social-orienting behavior. In other words, if you get rid of that part of the brain, you don't have social-orienting behavior. That's shown in the next slide, slide number 10. So in this case, we paired a control fish on the left with a fish that has ablated ventral telencephalon neurons on the right. And you can see that the control fish really wants to be friendly and hang out with the other fish, but the fish with the ablated ventral telencephalon neurons is really not interested. So it can't really undergo this uh, social orienting behavior. So I wanna say something here that's important This tells us that that particular brain region, the VTEL, is required for this behavior. It does not tell us that other brain regions are not important in that behavior. So we did ablate some other specific brain regions and they were not important, but of course we have not ablated every possible brain region. So there are presumably other regions that also figure into this behavior. Excuse me. So now we know uh, what brain region is important, and we want to ask: Is the host-associated microbiota important? So, if you go to the next slide, slide eleven, uh, this is a work. This is the work of Joseph Bruckner, who was a postdoctoral fellow in the lab. So, I've shown you adult zebrafish interacting with one another so far, but. Because we're interested in development, we really wanted to look at earlier stages. So if you look at the timeline at the top of the slide, you can see that these VTEL neurons are first visible during the first day of development. We can actually see them using expression of those transgenic uh, fluorophores. So that's how we know when the neurons are first visible. We assayed the behavior over time, and we saw that the behavior developed starting uh, sort of in the at the beginning of the second week of development and it developed slowly but by the end of the first week so by 14 days of development the behavior was very robust so that's when we assayed the behavior if you want to ask whether microbes are important for the behavior, you have to have a way of getting rid of the microbes. And in zebrafish, that's really easy. So right under the timeline, you see a bottle of bleach and below the bottle of bleach is an embryo, which is encased in in an eggshell. And what we can do is surface sterilize the eggshell and then put that embryo into sterile medium and they grow up without any microbes. So that's how we make animals germ-free. Of course, we need controls that have their microbes. So for our controls, which we call conventionalized, we immediately uh, populated them with the normal complement of microbes And it's easy to do this in zebrafish. We can just expose them to water that other fish have been swimming in. So that's what the other part of that diagram shows. So if we do that, you can see in slide number 12, two uh, two 14 day old larvae in the same kind of setup, these two tanks uh, right next to each other so the fish can see each other. And you can see that these larval fish show the same social-orienting behavior as adult fish. So they really want to hang out together and be friendly. So the next question is, are the microbes important? And if the microbes are important, when are they important? So in neuroscience, there's this concept of critical periods. And the idea is if a particular part of the brain does not wire up at a particular time then the opportunity to wire up correctly may be missed and it might not be possible for that part of the brain to to wire up correctly so because of the of the time course of development of this behavior we surmised that these neurons had to start wiring up correctly during the first week of development so what we did was allow them, and that is shown in the next slide, slide 13, what we did was allow them to remain germ-free for the first week of development, and then we colonized them at the end of that week with the normal microbes and let them grow up for another week, and then we assayed their behavior. And if you can look if you look at the next slide, slide 14, what you see is um, these two animals that were conventionalized on day seven and grew up for another week behave just like the adults with the ventral talencephalon neurons ablated. So they really don't um, show any social orienting behavior. And that is also shown in the, in the violin plot on the left. So... This tells us several things. It it, uh, confirms our hypothesis that these neurons start developing during the first week of development and that it's really uh, important for them to have microbial input during this time. And it also tells us that there's a critical period that microbial input after this time is not going to be sufficient to allow these neurons to develop correctly. So, uh, hang on a second, I just need a sip of water here. Okay. Okay, so so what's gone wrong with these neurons in the ventral telencephalon? So here's, if you look at uh, slide 15, this is just a reminder of where the ventral telencephalon is, the region that we know is important. So to begin to ask what's gone wrong with the neurons in this region of the brain, we actually need to be able to look at the neurons. So although it doesn't show in this particular picture, there's a lot of neurons in this uh, region that's green that has the arrow pointing to it. If you look at slide 16, you can see a blow up that shows some of the neurons this just shows you one plane of that. So there's there's neurons above and there's neurons below, but you can see each of those little round blobby things is a neuron. So to characterize the neurons, what Joseph did was take advantage of of a technique that allowed him to label only a few neurons in any particular brain. Um, and then he could actually characterize the morphology of those neurons. So if you look in slide 17, you can see just a diagrammatic representation of what those what one of those neurons looks like in an animal that has its normal uh, microbes. And if you look in slide 18, you can see a diagrammatic representation of what one of those neurons looks like in an animal that was germ-free. And this is, this is done now at seven days. So um, before the time at which we assayed the behavior. And what you can see is that the neuron in the germ-free animal is, uh, has much more extensive arborization many more processes. So this tells us a few different things. One of the things it tells us is that whatever's gone wrong is not just some sort of nutritional problem. Because if it was a nutritional problem, you would predict that the neurons would be smaller, not larger. The neurons are larger. Um, And it also uh, uh, tells us that somehow the circuitry that these neurons form is not going to be appropriate because if the neurons are sending processes to the wrong place, they're gonna make synapses in the wrong place with the wrong neurons. So the, the normal circuitry is not going to work. So Joseph did more characterization of this that's shown on slide 19 with something that is called Scholl analysis. The idea here is you take one of these neurons, of course the neurons are three-dimensional, but you can flatten them down to two-dimensional. So you can see this neuron with these concentric rings about it, and you ask how many times the processes of the neuron cross those rings. And that gives you a measure of neuronal complexity. So if you look at slide 20, what you can see is the germ-free neurons shown in green are significantly more complex than the conventional neurons, which are shown in gray. So this is seven days, well before the behavior is uh, is very robust, but at the time that we thought that the uh, uh, neurons would need to be really starting to make their appropriate connections. If you look in slide 21, what you see is this only gets worse over time. Even though now we've introduced back the normal microbes, this problem continues to get worse, and the, the neurites become more complex. And slide uh, 22 shows some quantification of that. So again, this shows us that that first week is a really important time for um, establishing uh, The appropriate neuronal connections and the appropriate processes and that we can't there is a critical period because introducing the the microbiome back at the end of the first week does not alleviate the problem okay so these neurons have extra neurites They have much more elaborate neurites. How does this happen? So if you look at slide 23, you will see a cell type that we immediately suspected. These are the magenta cells. They're called microglia. And uh, assuming the movie is playing, you should be able to see them interacting with the neurons in this part of the brain, the ventral telencephalon, the neurons are green. So why why would we imagine that microglia would be important? So microglia are innate immune cells. They're related to macrophages that are found in the circulation. But what's special about microglia is that they move into the brain early in development and they stay there. They don't go back out into the circulation. So they serve as the immune cells of the brain. They do lots of things. For example, if there's um, some sort of pathology, a brain injury, or some kind of infection, they will clean up dying neurons. And they will, uh, they will uh, <clears throat> excuse me respond to other inflammatory conditions. But if you look at slide 24, you'll see something else that's really important that microglia do, which is a process called pruning. So kind of surprisingly, during nervous system development, at least in vertebrate animals, many neurons make supernumerary projections and supernumerary synapses. And those synapses have to be pruned back in order for the circuitry to be appropriate. And I think um, this, is a, this is a picture that we stole off the internet from an artist named Julia Yellow, but I think you can realize that this is a really important process if um internet artists are, are putting it up on their website. So this is really critical. You know, you might think more synapses would be better, but if there are more synapses, they're going to be on appropriate neuro, inappropriate neurons and they're just going to cause the circuitry to, to fire at the wrong times. <clears throat> and so the, the uh, behavioral outputs will not be correct. So we wanted to to look more at these microglia, if they are really the intermediary between the host-associated microbes and the brain, we ought to be able to manipulate them in a variety of ways to try to mimic what we see in the germ-free state. So if you look at slide 25, this shows you a different view of the microglia. The microglia are all in purple. The VTEL region is that kind of grainy-looking dark region in the center. And so if we look at the number of microglia in that VTEL region in conventional animals and in germ-free animals, we see that there are fewer microglia in that region in the germ-free animals. So somehow the microbiome is uh, regulating the abundance of microglia in the ventral telencephalon. This picture also shows another assay system. So what we uh, can do is take pictures like this. This, again, is a 2D representation. Of something that's three dimensional, but we can scan through uh, in three dimensions, and the computer will reconstruct for us all of the processes of those neurons. So all of that grainy black stuff, and will um, give us a give us a readout of the density of the neuropil. So those are the, the processes of these neurons, and it gives us a very easy uh, way to ask whether, whether um, we see uh, extra supernumerary processes as I showed you when I showed you the individual neuron. So what we decided to do, <coughs> excuse me, was knock down a gene called erf 8 erf 8 is required for development of microglia. And if you look at the next slide, slide 26, you can see if we knocked it down if 8 we saw fewer microglia in the, in the VTEL region of the brain, and we also saw an increase in the density of the neuropil in that region. So that tells us that microglial abundance is really important, and the microbiome is regulating the abundance of the microglia, and the microglia... Are important for um, uh, preventing or from restraining these uh, supernumerary um, projections made by the VTEL neurons in the germ-free state. Okay, so now what we'd really like to know is some of the molecular mechanisms understanding this. What are that? What are the underlying molecular pathways? And to begin to look at this, if you go to slide 27, we collaborated with Michelle Massakoy, who was at the time a graduate student in my colleague Karen Gilliman's lab. So I mentioned Karen Gilliman at the very beginning when I said that that, uh, her work helped spur me to think about the role of microbes in brain development. So, what Michelle Massicoy did was to use single-cell RNA sequencing to compare the genes expressed in conventional zebrafish larvae with those expressed in germ-free zebrafish larvae to ask what genes were uh, what gene expression was regulated by the microbiome. And so uh, Michelle looked at a lot of different cell types and one of the cell types that we found in the single cell RNA sequencing was the was the microglia and so then joseph started looking at microglial genes that might be important so one gene that we immediately thought might be important or one set of genes were members of the complement signaling pathway So, you might think of complement signaling in wound healing and scar formation, or excuse me, scab formation. But it turns out that the complement pathway is also important in pruning. If you look at slide 29, you can see that these genes in the complement family um, have decreased expression in the germ free larvae. And so, if you haven't seen these kinds of charts before, the, the names on the left are the, are the names of several different genes in the complement uh, pathway. The size of the dots tells you how many of the cells of that type express the gene, and the color tells you the relative expression levels. So you can see that expression levels of all of the genes in this pathway are are decreased in the germ free state. So, if you go to slide 30, you can see work from another laboratory, Ben uh, Barris's laboratory, showing some of the importance of complement in this pruning process. So, microglial cells shown in turquoise here actually decorate synapses that are uh, marked for degradation with C3, which is a member of the complement signaling pathway. And then they use um, C1Q to actually degrade those synapses. And this is uh, shown again in more detail on slide 31. So we decided to focus on um, C1Q, and that's shown in slide 32. Zebrafish have two copies of C1Q. They have C1QA and C1QB. And so those are the two genes that we focused on. So if you look in slide 33, what you see is the same picture that I showed you before of the microglia um, in the Vtel region of the brain, which is this grainy dark one in the center. So if we knock down C1Q, we see the same number of microglia as we see in control animals. And that's exactly what you would expect because C1Q is going to be downstream of microglial abundance. The microglia are still going to be there. This is a gene that relates to their function, not their their abundance. But we do see that the forebrain uh, neuropil density is increased when we knock down C1Q, and that is what we would have predicted. That was our hypothesis because we, um, based on the changes in gene expression, uh, imagined that C1Q is part of the process by which these microglia undertake their, their pruning. So it looks like, from the previous slides and this slide and Um, And our conclusion would be that uh, the microbiota regulate abundance of the microglia, but they also regulate function of the microglia, that is expression of particular genes that are important for the microglia to carry out their job, which in this particular instance is pruning to get rid of the supernumerary synapses and ensure the fidelity of the synaptic connections. Okay, so now we know something about the cellular properties. We know a little bit about the uh, molecular properties of what's going on in the microglia. And one of the big questions that we're interested in is what kinds of signals are the microbes making to affect the microglia? So if you look in slide 34, we've tried to address that here. And the way we address this was to make animals germ-free and then to um, associate them, not with the whole microbiome, but with just specific members of the microbiome. We tried this with three different members of the microbiome, Aero, which is Eremonas, Ent, which is Enterobacter and Staph, which is Staphylococcus. Staphylococcus is a gram-positive bacterium. Uh, Enterobacter and Aeromonas are gram-negative bacteria. And these are all bacteria that have been isolated from zebrafish. And what we saw is that all of these, um, of these bacterial isolates had some ability to affect both the number of microglia and the neuropil density. So this suggests to us that there's perhaps some common uh, molecular feature of these particular bacteria, and maybe other bacteria as well, that can influence the microglia. We don't yet know what this molecular feature is, but of course that's something that we're very interested in and something that we're we're working to understand. So if you go to slide 35, this is a summary of what I hope that I've shown you. So some sort of common bacterial products coming from bacteria that are probably located in the intestinal tract, although we don't know that for sure, influence the microglia. And they influence the microglia in a couple of ways. They control microglial abundance. So there are fewer microglia. So those microglia are gonna have a harder time pruning just because there are fewer of them. They also influence expression of uh, C1Q and other members of the complement family of of, uh, of genes. And so this means that they're going to be less effective at doing their job. So it's kind of a double whammy for the microglia. You have fewer of them and they're less effective at doing their job, which means that the neurons can make supernumerary arbors which are not pruned back. They can make ectopic synaptic connections with inappropriate targets. And so the wiring is not appropriate, and that prevents the fish from ca- <coughs> excuse me from carrying out their social behavior. So, if you go to the next slide, thirty-six, which is the last slide, I'm going to end here with my acknowledgments. Uh, of course, we have to start out by acknowledging the zebrafish and its host-associated microbes, which allowed us to carry out this study. Um, At the bottom you see various funding sources and people and places that supported us with reagents and um, uh, fish rearing and so forth. And then I'll just remind you of the people who worked on this. Joseph Bruckner was a postdoctoral fellow and he did uh, much of the work that I spoke about. Sarah Stednuts was a graduate student who developed the assays for looking at behavior. Max Grice. Sedan uh, were undergraduates who did a lot of data analysis. Alex Talafoos was a postdoctoral fellow who did a lot of data analysis. Michelle Massakoy was a graduate student who did the single cell RNA sequencing, and various parts of this work have been collaborations with my colleagues Karen Gilman and Phil Washburn. <laughs> and I am going to end there and I'm very happy to take questions.
1: Well, thank you so much for uh, this wonderful presentation and sharing this um really interesting and wonderful work with us. Um and um this is really so interesting that um you know to, that you discovered this mechanism and then even went down to the RNA sequencing uh details. So um that the, the question I had kind of when I read this is there, there's some recent um, work also showing that um, in the human population kind of the diversity of the microbiome is, is going down um, for probably various reasons. Um, I'm not sure how good that data is and you know human studies and so on but assuming that that would be true, uh, could that explain like the the rise in mental health and neurodevelopmental disorders such as autism and so on or would that be a too simplified um, interpretation of the work?
0: That is a really fantastic question and i think the answer to it of course is we don't know yet and it's very complicated but there are there are some uh pieces of information that we have um so there are neurodevelopmental disorders such as uh autism spectrum disorder is the one that's uh particularly in which uh uh case it's known that at least some people have an altered microbiome and there have been some studies transplanting in microbes from people who are not autistic and showing some rescue of behavior, which is how autism is diagnosed. So that suggests that it could be a, uh, uh, a change in the microbiome. It doesn't really say yet whether it's because there are microbes that are missing or there are uh, microbes there that shouldn't be there, but I think those are things that people who study human patients are are actually starting to pursue and we will know more about it. Um, there, there, there are a lot of people who are thinking along the same lines that you suggested, that the change in the microbiome, the decrease in the diversity of the microbiome in uh, people who eat a Western diet um, is really highly correlated with the rise of neurodevelopmental disorders and later neuropsychological disorders. And there are people researching that um it you know it seems like a plausible explanation but like everything else you have to delve into it deeply and it's hard to do those kinds of studies on people and it's especially hard to do those kinds of studies on people at scale but there's a lot of interest and people are really working hard on this to to try to understand it Um, i think this this research you know used to be kind of esoteric but it's really coming into its own now and i think we'll know a lot more about this in the next few years
1: yeah thank you so much for that answer that uh, is really interesting and the other thing that i'm concerned about and we had like a couple of guest speakers here is that at the same time also the microbiome of the soil, uh due to various reasons, is also declining the variety. You know, which could yeah. <laughs> we don't know enough yet. And maybe there are species, do you think there are species dying out that we will need and we don't know of them? And they'll just Gone, and we all stuck in being depressed. <laughs> I
0: don't know, now, these are these are great. These are great questions, and questions to which we don't know the answer. and And these questions are important at multiple scales. So I saw this morning an article in the New York Times, which looked at the uh the the rapid loss and continuing loss of habitat for vertebrate species and how, you know, trying to make some ideas about how that may affect the planet. So you can think about it at that level and loss of plant species too. Many plant species are being diminished or lost. Vertebrate species, insect species, microbes, how is this, You know, what are the long-term effects of this? I think we don't We don't really know yet, um, but it's definitely a big worry. One way that microbes are different than uh, say vertebrates or plants is that microbes can share genes and especially in the intestinal tract there's a lot of evidence for gene transfer between microbes. So maybe it doesn't matter so much if you have microbe X, if you have all of microbe X's gene functions, but once again, we don't know enough about this kind of transfer to have an understanding of of where that stands. So these are these are all, um, I think, really deep, really important questions to which we don't have answers, and the 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 challenges that we're facing in the world right now make it really important to try to get some answers and to think about what sort of conservation measures we really have to accelerate if the answer is yes, we need these species.
1: Yes, thank you so much. I want to hand over uh, the questioning to um, everyone else here on stage. Um, Dr. Shah, Serena, Eli, Dennis, um, Dr. Roshanak, welcome, and please go ahead
2: in uh, PTR order. Thank you. Thank you so much, Judith. That was a wonderful presentation, and uh, out of my curiosities about the interaction of the gut microbiota and immune system. As we know that the zebrafish is very unique uh, material, and we can just follow up with the both type 2 you know, immune response as well as the um, adaptive as well as the uh, initiate immune system response. And I was just wondering what was your finding about uh, those matter? And did you find any further information about this adaptation? And I know that the response to the bacteria might be different than parasites. And those kind of information, if you have that you can share with us that would be wonderful. I don't I
0: don't I don't think we know enough at this point to say a lot more. You know, these are all things that we're actively working on. So ask me next time.
2: <laughs> yes, so by considering this uh, microglia that you just explained did you find any further information about the expression uh, of the membrane protein?
0: We haven't looked specifically at the membrane protein. So we, we initially just went right for the complement signaling pathway because we already knew that it was important for pruning. But we have a whole collection of genes in the microglia that are regulated by the microbiome and, you know, probably many of them are important in this process. And they're all genes that we want to look at in the future, but we haven't started doing that yet.
2: And that was a mature zebrafish, right? Not in a stage of the larvae or-
0: No, no, the ones that we looked at were, except for the very first behavioral experiments that I showed you, everything else was in larvae. I see, and any specific uh, kind of
2: for example, cycle like a, for example, butyric acid or any kind of uh, receptors that you notify, you know that they have a main role.
0: I cannot remember off the top of my head what all those genes were. There's a lot of them. Yeah, okay. yeah. I was very confident. I, I think I, I, if I recall correctly, the all the microglial genes. Whose expression was affected should be in the supplementary materials of the paper, which I do not have pulled up right now. Um, but of course, it's all you know available online. I just don't remember off the top of my head.
2: As part of the mapping, you mean? You had yeah. the mapping. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah.
2: I see. So, thank you so much. I'm passing the mic to the next person.
3: Hello. Um, yeah, fascinating. Um presentation, I caught the the tail end of it after slide 24 or so, but the connection between the microbiome and synaptic pruning um, strikes me as particularly interesting. um, And that the microglia are the mediators of that. Um, I have two questions. One, um, I've been very curious about the interaction of astrocytes in, uh, in 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 uh, neural information processing, um, and I'm curious in in your work, um, could you comment on the in any level of involvement or interaction between the microglia and the astrocytes? And as a second question, I'm curious if you can comment on. Um, you know, so this, the, I'm still piecing this picture together, but a microbiome influencing uh, through microglia to for synaptic pruning. Um, you know, any, uh, do, well, how much do we understand about the nature of, you know, which synapses get pruned and why? Um, and it would be really cool if there was a relation between those two questions.
0: Yeah, yeah. Great question, so let me start with the astrocytes. We have not looked at astrocytes until a few months ago, or maybe it was last year. Uh, Everybody said, oh, zebrafish, they don't have astrocytes. And of course, that's impossible. They're vertebrates, they have to have astrocytes, but nobody had discovered astrocytes. So um, uh, Kelly Monk, who's at uh, Oregon Health and Sciences University, discovered astrocytes in zebrafish larvae and has good markers for astrocytes. We have not looked at them. But what I will tell you is just because the microglia are involved in this pruning does not mean that the astrocytes are not also involved in the pruning. It's completely plausible. We just have not looked at that. We're getting the markers from the Monk lab, and it's something that we'd like to look at because, obviously, these are important cell types. in terms of how astrocytes or microglia determine which synapses are important and which ones should be pruned, the idea is that neural activity is important in this process, but that might not be the only thing that's important in the process. So, in our particular case, we have not looked at all at neural activity, so we really we really don't know um, what it is that would tell a microglial cell or an astrocyte, hey, this is, a, this is a synapse we want to keep versus, hey, this is a synapse we don't want to keep. I think that's a really critical question. And I think in most places, we, we don't know the answer to that question.
3: It's amusing that it was, only recently discovered that zebrafish have astrocytes. I didn't, I wasn't aware that it, it was thought that they didn't, <laughs> I thought they well, were it,
0: it, It's not so much that it was thought that they didn't. Nobody had found a marker that distinguished astrocytes from other cell types. So if you don't have a marker, does that mean you don't have the cell? Or do you, does it mean that it's masquerading as something else or it doesn't express the marker? and I have to say um, one of the long-standing questions that I have asked my students in my course when I teach over decades now is how many markers do you need to recognize a particular cell type and be really sure about what it is? And you know, mm-hmm. that's a kind of a philosophical question, right? But if you don't have, if you don't have good markers, it's a problem in this day and age, when you can do single cell RNA sequencing, you can pull out a lot of markers, and then that is really helpful. So for example, for identifying the ventral telencephalon microglia, I think Joseph used something like 75 markers to uniquely identify those cells. So there's no one gene that tells you that it's a particular cell. But if you're back in the days before single cell RNA sequencing, and you're stuck with one marker or five markers or something that you can reasonably work with under those conditions, it's much more difficult. So I think, uh, you know, some of these are questions of, of, of scale and just technical ability to, to recognize something.
3: Very interesting. Thank
4: you so much. I'll pass the mic to Eli. Uh, Thanks, Serena. And and, uh, thanks, Judith. Mm. Uh, Absolutely fascinating. Uh, I regret uh, coming in late, but I look uh, forward to listening to the replay for, for what I missed. Um, I wanted to just quickly make a a general point, which forgive me if if you made this at the start, but um, we look at systems like this now and, you know, we see uh, the role that, uh, um, the, the microbiome and, and its interaction with the host is playing in a developmental process. But in terms of evolution, uh, very likely these things co-evolved and the presence of, of uh, the microbiome with certain effects was, was kind of in the context. I, I just wondered if you wanted to expand on that point or, or I think... criticize it.
0: No, no, I think that's, A great point I did not make it during the talk but if you think about the process of evolution there was never an us without them right there have never been vertebrate animals without associated microbes there have never been any animals without host associated microbes if you look at the work of people like Nicole King um, they uh, they certainly uh, favor the hypothesis that the ability of single cells to come together to form multicellular organisms, which would be the beginning of animals, relied on interactions with microbes. And so so, um, I think it's really really part of the evolutionary process. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that development of the nervous system or any other part of the body is a collaboration between excuse me the microbes and and the host cells Um, that said I think not so many people are thinking about it in that context right now Um, but I'm hoping that more people do think about it in that context because there I think there are lots of things that we think we know about developmental processes or physiological processes, but what we think we know is probably not uh, entirely correct because we have taken the microbes out of the equation by not even considering them.
1: Yeah, thank you for, the, for those questions. Uh, yeah, Dr. Roshanak, please go ahead.
5: Hi, thank you so much. Um, thank you for this wonderful talk. Unfortunately, my internet was is really spotty right now where I am. Uh, and again, I like Eli, I'm very happy that they're going to I'm going to be able to watch the replays. So I can properly see all the slides and go through the talk again. I know um, there was a PNS PNAS paper earlier this year um, that talked about uh, microglia. And um, their importance, uh, on chandelier cells in, um, some mouse research, uh, mm-hmm. that shows, uh, how they were, uh, critically relevant for cognitive function, um, and, um, specific to a developmental time period, um, to help the synapses form. And, um, it's sort of in line with what you were talking about here. Um, And my question is, so I think that's very interesting because now we have even more information continually sort of pointing in the same direction. Um, Humans who are born through C-section have a lot less um, microbes, right? Than those who are um, delivered vaginally. And yet I don't know of any correlation between neurodevelopmental disorders and this change in the um, uh, number of microbes that a, a human baby would have at birth. I don't know if you know about that or not. Um, I know that, like you were saying in the autism spectrum, that actually uh, patients who had, um, were on the spectrum, whose feces were transferred to mice who were engineered to be germ-free ended up having symptoms that mimicked autism so it goes both ways right but um and the and the brain of of those uh who have asd you know their heads and their brains are bigger at birth lots of connections but then over time then that actually flips around the other direction um So when you were talking about you know the basically the idea of sort of too many or connections or sprouting or whatever, um, I I just kind of see like there's this sort of tenuous connection, but I there's it's almost like there's a missing link somewhere. Do you know what I mean? I'm just wondering if you can comment on that at all.
0: Gosh, I wish I I wish I could fill in that missing link. Um, I'd be getting the Nobel Prize next week or whenever. I know, right? If I could.
5: (laughs) Well, I'm trying
0: to help you out here. So, so babies who are born uh, by C-section have a microbiome that looks much more like the skin microbiome than like the, the gut microbiome, at least initially, but that changes over time and it changes fairly rapidly. And the microbiome, you know, we don't really understand the rules for microbiome assembly, but it does assemble over time and it changes over time and and uh, you know it's changing at least in the early formative stages during the time uh, when the when the brain is changing and synapses are forming and processes are growing and exactly how all of those things are correlated, we we don't entirely know so one thing that seems to be the case with placental mammals at least from work that's been done in mice is that there's an influence of the microbiome prenatally and that's mom's microbiome influencing mom in ways that then influence in this case it would be mouse pups right and so you can imagine that that's something that could contribute both to neurotypical development if everything's working properly or to atypical neural development if things are not working properly. And then that could be layered upon by what happens postnatally in terms of the, the development of the microbiome and then, of course, we can't just throw out the host genes. Host genes are important, too. Um, so we take atypical neural development, say, autism spectrum. Um, it's not one thing. It's a lot of different things that we lump together based on behavioral tests. There are a lot of genes that make contributions. Uh, we know a lot of them. Some of them we probably don't know. But that, you know, so there are all these multiple different layers working together and we don't um, really yet have uh, great ways of sorting these things out. And I think one of the exciting things about biology right now is the that we are developing the tools that will help us to sort these things out, um, you know, lots of... AI neural network type analyses that will allow us to see patterns. And then uh, those patterns can be experimentally tested to, to try to understand what's important. When is it important? um, And then hopefully that will lead to therapeutic interventions, or at least the possibility of therapeutic interventions. But you know, it's just, there's just so much more that we need to know.
5: Thank you so much, um, if I may. And have you seen any kind of correlation? Uh, and I don't work with sea fish, so I'm not all that
4: familiar.
5: Can- but, um, I know that there was, first of all, we know very well that you can change the microbiome uh, um, of a person in about a month or something like that. GABA, dopamine, serotonin, all kinds of intimate correlation between sleep and um, and, and our wonder. Um, and of course, the, the glioglymphatic toxins getting us to be able to function properly is there any kind of correlation that you found or that you're concerned
0: I have to say, I'm sorry, but I missed a lot of what you asked because it um, I think a poor internet connection. Sorry. So maybe can you repeat it or if somebody else got it all, maybe sorry. they can repeat it?
5: Yeah, it's still in the morning and I'm in the Middle East. It's really tough. I'm sorry. Yeah.
0: So oh. so your question was about right serotonin? I can Am hear I you better now. You sorry. No, you're yeah I'm, you're found. You were you were asking about serotonin? Um no, I think it's I do have can you hear me at you all? Know?
4: Sorry, you're you're in the matrix. May, maybe if you could type your question into the room chat.
0: Yeah, yeah, that would be great. And then if somebody could read it to uh, me, the production
5: yeah. neurotransmitters.
1: Um, I'm sorry, Doctor Oshenak. Um, if you could type the question in the chat, then I'll read it out to Judith, and um, and we can go from there. Um, John and Nas, and before we we continue, I wanted to check with you, Julie, how much time you have left, like how many questions you still have time for. Before
0: we we could keep going for another fifteen minutes. Okay,
1: perfect. Is that good? Yeah, thank you so much for giving us uh, more time. So um, okay, uh, John, uh, Dennis, you also uh. Didn't ask a question. In case you want, please, you know, unmute and NAS, Please go ahead.
3: Mm, okay. Uh, thank you. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Yeah. a Very interesting talk. So, I'm just wondering. So, there are a lots of patients see who, uh, had a see uh uh small ball or large ball removed. Uh, and uh, so, do they have any kind of see like a uh uh uh, effective uh for the patient so have you ever studied this kind of patient
0: i have not and i've not read anything about it i will just say i'd be surprised if there was not an effect but i but i don't know what that effect would be and i don't offhand know whether anybody's studying it but i'm guessing somebody will be so we'll Hopefully, know more about this soon.
3: Yeah, there are quite a few see patients has see this problem, or probably doing some uh, experimenting see mice or rat. Maybe can provide us some more information. Ab-
0: absolutely, yeah. Yeah.
3: Thank you. Uh,
1: Denise Nas, uh, would you have a question?
3: Yes, I do. Uh, thank you, first of all. I'm not so sure what she means by promote social behavior. Is that activate social behavior, activate genes, turn on genes, turn them off? How do you major such promotions? So I'm not so sure. So
0: You'd I get... think the way we're thinking about it is, is kind of simple. If you take away the microbes, the fish still swim. They still see, they swim just as much, but they don't interact with each other. If they have their normal microbes, they interact with one another. So I would call that promoting social behavior. Um, It's not meant to be the idea that, that the microbes are purposefully making the fish interact. We don't know that. You know, promote there is just a uh, a word that's meant to de- describe the fact that um the microbes are necessary. So I guess we could restate it as saying the mi- <coughs> <coughs> excuse me the microbiome is necessary for social behavior.
3: Thank you. That's much further.
1: that's an interesting thought because i guess the microbiome would be interested in having close contact to other humans to kind of you know um would that make sense
0: right so that's that's a really good point if you have fish and they're not interacting with each other they're not going to spread (coughs) excuse me spread their their microbes to each other and um, one would think um, especially you know after we have been through this covid pandemic that one of the things that microbes want to do whether you're talking about vi- viruses or bacteria is they want they want um, more hosts so that they can because they expand the, their populations and they need new environments in which to live but of course we don't that's, that maybe is uh, teleological thinking, and we don't know that that's the case.
3: It's a very interesting theory. <laughs> it's the microbes responsible for space exploration, of course.
5: <laughs> <laughs> um, can you guys hear me now? Is it better? Yes, much better. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, thanks. Sorry, I'm, I'm in a... It's the middle of the night. I'm in the Middle East and I have a terrible connection. I keep falling out, I apologize. And thank you for your patience. So in short, before I lose the connection again, um, I was just asking about the correlation because the microbiome can be changed relatively quickly and organically. And it is responsible for production of various neurotransmitters, including those that would relate to um, mood, anxiety, et cetera. And we know that social connection improves mood, decreases anxiety, so on and so forth. Um, And that there's an intimate relationship between sleep um, and um, chronic inflammation, uh, disturbance of the microbiome, uh, mental health, so on and so forth. And then the glial lymphatic or the glymphatic system that releases the toxins in the human brain during sleep. So I'm wondering if there's any kind of uh, correlation that you may have found and I'm not familiar with zebrafish, um, that might be, that might speak to, sorry, that might speak to that a little bit.
0: So we have not looked at that, but I can direct you to other laboratories where they study mice and also people. So John Cryan's laboratory in Ireland and Jane Foster's laboratory in Canada, um, where those are, the kinds of things that they are looking at, um, we just haven't done it in in zebrafish so far, so I can't say much.
5: What kind of like sleep wake cycles do they have? Do,
1: do you know anything about
0: that? Um, yeah, people have studied their sleep wake cycles, so they they do uh, they do have a sleep like state um, in the in the dark. Um, and people have done some exploration of, of other things that are um, affected by the sleep-wake cycle, but um, not so much the kinds of things that we've been looking at.
4: Just out of curiosity on, on that point, there was something recently about spiders uh, displaying uh, dreaming-like activity. Do, do they uh, do anything similar?
0: I, I saw that article about spiders. I think that's fascinating. Um, so am I'm I'm trying to to recall and I, I just don't know how much people have looked into, you know, whether fish have a REM sleep like state or things like that. Somebody might have done it, but off the top of my head I cannot recall
4: if if nobody's done it it's it's pretty ripe because if spiders do it then... yeah absolutely yeah that should be a title if spiders do it. And, and and actually you know as as you were you were as after i came in here as you were talking i i had to ask myself okay when when did compliments show up it showed up apparently in in crabs uh or at least as early as crabs so uh that's not too far removed from spiders
0: Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, thank you so much. That that is such an interesting discussion uh, with the spiders and um, um. How's do they have a microbiome then too? Like, and that's interesting. When. It's interesting to think doesn't about. Doesn't when... everything have a microbiome?
0: Er, every, everything has a microbiome. Everything. I mean, yeah. If you if you think about every every uh, multicellular organism on this planet has a microbiome. So plants, all <clears throat> all animals. In in most animals, a major portion of the microbiome is going to be in the intestinal tract. But there are also microbes all over the outside too which are probably different than the ones in the intestinal tract. So everything has a microbiome. Um, we don't know so much about the microbiome of everything. People have looked at the Drosophila microbiome a bit. And it also affects the nervous system.
1: Well, that's interesting. Um, and so the the coevolution of the microbiome with the immune system and then also the neurosystem system is probably very closely related. So um, I was fascinated, you know, by one of the first papers that, um, kind of, uh, from the lab that uh, discovered that the brain has like its own immune system and how um, immune signaling um, directly affected um or influence interneuron activity
0: right. in
1: the cortex um through gaba mechanism that that was so fascinating when that first came out which opened up um so so much so do you think there is a mechanism how the microbiome could maybe uh also have like a very direct influence uh, either release of maybe some um, immune system signaling that then directly influence the neurons also in a more direct way, or? Um,
0: I, I, think that's, I think that's likely to be the case. I don't have any specific knowledge of it, but I think it's likely to be the case. But one of the things to think about is somebody asked about astrocytes. And you know, astrocytes are firmly part of the of the neural lineage, whereas macrophages are firmly, or uh, microglia are firmly part of the the blood cell lineage, and and yet they make lots of molecules in common, you know. And they have, in the brain at least, they have a number of functions in common. So there's this this convergence that's going on. Um, I I just would not doubt that there aren't other direct signals that microglia make that affect the nervous system besides pruning
1: so that's really interesting because do you think there would be also a system to kind of detect which microbiome is ours and which one isn't because i don't know if it would make sense to do so but in order to recognize like bacteria that kind of we have to get rid of to survive, um, it would make sense to kind of have a memory, or the immune system would have a memory of a microbiome information, gene- like information that could kind of distinguish between this is microbiome and this is like um, germs attacking us.
0: Um, yeah. So I think that's an interesting point because whether a microbe is, is a pathogen or whether it's beneficial could depend on a lot of things. There are a lot of members of our microbiome that are gonna be pathogenic if their abundance changes. You know, we have a, we have a, a bloom of that particular microbe, but if they're there under normal circumstances, they're not pathogenic. So, you know, you think about strep and staph, I mean, those are very commonly on the in the skin microbiome, but they're not making people sick, right? And so um, I think one of the things that the microbiome does is it educates the immune system about what's, uh, what's a beneficial microbe what's a pathogen how to distinguish them and when to distinguish them and what are the you know what are the um, I'll use a very teleological word here criteria by which they should be distinguished but there has to be a mechanism for that You know, a lot of these microbes that we find in the zebrafish um, microbiome for example we find vibrio there it's a vibrio that's related to vibrio cholera we know if we have a bloom of those vibrio <coughs> excuse me it's very pathological but it's a normal member of the microbiome it's there all the time and it's not a problem most of the time and uh, same thing is true with our microbiomes yeah the, the
1: thing is going back to the uh to the diversity loss is that basically the training then of the immune system would kind of be more and more poor could that lead to more false positive and also contribute to like um autoimmune disorders like increase in diabetes and allergies and so on just due to the fact that there's not enough Microbiome diversity to get trained on, so we just attack randomly. You know, have more false positives. I don't know. Maybe that's too far-fetched.
0: But I, 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 you know, I think it's, I think it's a completely reasonable hypothesis. I don't think we have the answer, but I think it's a complete, completely reasonable hypothesis and something that uh, can then be tested. And people are trying to test that.
1: Well, thank you. Oh, Victoria. Yeah. Please go ahead. Your last,
2: You have the last question. <laughs> it's, a, it's actually a very basic question, but I'm curious because you studied zebrafish, do they start their journey in life with a microbiome? Because my understanding for at least humans and other mammals, a lot of that is actually ingested during the birth canal
0: and birth process. But, so it's the same thing in fish. They're thought to be sterile inside their eggshell, but um, the eggshell does accumulate microbes on it. And when they hatch out of the eggshell, they start assembling their microbiome. So, you know, they're gonna hatch out of their eggshell, not exactly the same time that an animal animal would be born through the birth canal, but, you know, it's kind of the same thing. So they would, they would start out sterile and then accumulate their microbiome later. So there are going to be some aspects of development that are not gonna be regulated by their microbiome. Now, in a placental mammal, it could be <coughs> excuse me, regulated by mom's microbiome. And I guess in a zebrafish, it could be regulated by things that mom packaged into the egg based on her microbiome. And that's something that's completely unstudied.
4: But, but it bears uh, noting that complement uh, itself recognizes bacteria. So, right. uh, so this is kind of like right at, at the borderline between uh, uh, the microbiome and innate immune, immunity affecting development.
0: Yeah, absolutely, yep.
1: Well, thank you so much for this wonderful presentation and for answering so many questions. And thank you everyone for asking all these interesting questions. It was such an interesting discussion. So to this, I hope you enjoyed it. And thank you so much for being here. And you already mentioned earlier, maybe you'll come back one time next year around this time of the year. So that would be amazing. Thank you.
0: I, I would love to uh, thank you everybody for thank you Katerina for inviting me thank you everybody for a great discussion hi I'm gonna have to stop talking now because you can probably hear I'm starting to get laryngitis but this was really fun and I would love to come back
1: wonderful uh, we always enjoy hearing that you know our speaker enjoyed it so uh, please rest uh, have a good weekend and happy holidays, and um, I hope you know we hear each other one day again. Thank you.
0: Great, thank you. Thanks, thank you so everyone. much. Thank you. That was great. great.
5: Thank you. Thanks, everyone.
1: And um, yeah, if you like discussions like this, follow the club. We have another room tomorrow actually this week with Doctor Kabuk to um, talking about. Um, um, research that shows how complex prehistoric cuisine was, including uh, Neanderthal uh, recipes kind of uh, based on archaeology findings. I think this will be really interesting and a different type of topic. So um, yeah, maybe you'll join us. It's at uh, 2 PM EST. And uh, we have one more room before the holidays on Monday with Dr. Jan. Young from UC Davis and how he developed a lensless 3D camera Um, that um, is also a really interesting novel development and um, then we'll have a room again January 5th so um, yeah these two are the last rooms of this year and in the meantime Mary will do a room about capturing Talking about highlights, we had so many guest speakers that were so amazing. So we thought kind of would be really interesting to have like um, kind of a summary room and everyone can share what their kind of favorite thing is they learned or surprising thing they learned throughout this year. I think I've never learned so much from so many different research topics like fields uh since we did our club so uh, that that's really amazing so yeah i'll announce that um probably on monday when we'll have that room so thank you very much um and i hope i hear you all back again thank you judith and uh, i hope you feel better
0: thank you again and um see you in the future
1: yep (laughs) thank you bye everyone thank you Bye. bye
5: Thanks for the talk. Best of luck.